Next scheduled news at 11 o'clock over WOR Radio 710, the talk of New York. And here's Gene Shepard. First, this WOR reply to an editorial. In an earlier editorial, WOR urged you to use your right to vote. Here, with another perspective on that thought, is Dr. Patrick Curran of the Social Studies faculty at the Islip Public Schools. Just prior to Election Day, WOR encouraged people to use their right to vote. This right, like any right in a democratic society, has a corresponding duty to know the issues and study the backgrounds of the candidates. Rather than just a last-minute appeal to bring out the voter, the media should begin weeks before the election to encourage people to become aware of the offices up for election and the issues involved. Democracy requires an involved and informed electorate, not uninformed lever pullers. Another comment made was that people do not vote because of obstacles in the registration law. These laws were passed to curb the abuses that abounded when this state had walk-in voting. They ensure that only qualified voters can cast a ballot. Over the years, the requirements to vote have been lowered and permanent personal registration has been introduced. This safeguard should not be eliminated. Since intelligent voting requires effort, let the effort to register be the first step and a working democracy the end result. Dr. Patrick Curran of the Islip Public Schools has been replying to a WOR editorial. culture not here tonight and what makes culture it's a good question and uh, no one's ever been able to define that is culture Archie Bunker uh, getting a number one rating or is uh, <laughs> is culture the daily news 
Uh, well, who knows? You know, culture is culture. You know, <laughs> culture is what it is. It's whatever you define it to be. Actually, I'm afraid it's just so so complex and so multifaceted. Uh, is uh, is let's say uh, Arthur Miller? Is he reflecting life in America any more than I am? Well, depends on whether you're an Arthur Miller fan. Oh, really? It it really does. And that doesn't sound, that doesn't, I'm not, don't mean that egotistically. I mean, is, let's say, Tennessee Williams reflecting life in our time any more than, let's say, Mary Tyler Moore? Tough question. <laughs> not a simple question. And, uh, and, you know, a lot of people tend to make it this simple. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, Tennessee Williams is a, you know, not necessarily. Uh, because there are a lot of famous writers of uh, the 19th century which are today totally unknown to anybody, even even literary historians who were very big at the time. <laughs> uh, yeah, have you ever tried to wander through uh, some of the novels that were written at that time? And uh, the people who were not taken seriously often at that period have emerged as the, as the voices that are still read. Among them, uh, Ambrose Bierce. Hardly known to people of his time. Uh, you, you know the name Beers? Uh, like, uh, you know, there are dozens of other examples. But to, what makes culture? Well, it's, it's whatever, uh, whatever uh, at the time turns you on. And, you know, the reason I, I, I got on this kick tonight, that thinking about it, was because there's a current trend uh, that, uh, that should be reported on. Nobody said much about it, but I'm reporting on it. And that is a sudden trend among many screenwriters and... TV people to, without giving credit, by the way, often, in fact, most often without giving credit, to draw upon not only the writings, but the characters and the attitudes of people who were unknown writers of the 30s, pulp writers specifically. Now, for example, many people seeing Chinatown were not probably aware that many of the lines in Chinatown, just actual lines spoken by the character, came right out of a writer uh, who wrote originally mystery stories in pulp magazines of the 30s. Now, there was no credit, as far as I know, given to him. But they just, and they also took the character. The character was taken, renamed, though, the character that, that uh, Nicholson played in that, that movie was a character that had been created uh, in all aspects, uh, almost all specific and many subtle aspects, by Raymond Chandler. Uh, the original character was called Philip Marlowe. Um, now, but that happens to be a famous case, but there are many, many other cases where you'll see this series and say, oh, it's a great series. But they took it from the, uh, an even lesser known writer, uh, maybe of the period, that didn't get, if, after all, Raymond Chandler was famous, <laughs> that there were a lot of pulp writers who never emerged out of that, that uh, misty, uh, world of the pulp writer. See, because Chandler, late in his career, after having written for many years for really rotten magazines, I mean, ma magazines that were sold for a dime, he, he was paid by the word, not by the story. He was paid by, by uh, if, you, if you wrote uh, like a penny a word, and if you wrote a 200-word uh, page, you got 200 pennies. That's right. It was about a penny, penny and a half a word. So a guy would write 5,000 words, and what would he get? He'd get $5. <laughs> you know, so it was a hard, tough life. These guys were grinding it out. Now, he happened to get famous because late in his career, he took a lot of his short stories and made them then into novels. 
took the original short stories and, to, and, and, and turned it into a, a series of novels which uh, sold enormously. But had he not done that, his short stories would have disappeared into the great uh, yellowed pulp pages of anonymity, except that they would be continually be redone by various other screenwriters, <laughs> but he'd never get credit. So this is a this is a one of those fascinating things, and and uh, there is a current trend to to take these guys because they were really writing in a curious way, m- much more vital literature, uh, vital in the sense of dramatic content, in the sense of uh, of uh, in a sense setting a trend for a whole new. Sing, thing to come in later years and in, in uh, more uh, highly paid and uh, better known writers they were starting a thing which at that time was not very certainly not very uh, at any point uh, respectable and so many of them wrote under 15 different names in fact I remember one time running into a guy <laughs> a funny guy who who had who wrote he was a professional hack and he knew it he was a hack that's what he was and he he wrote for pulp magazines now there was there were times he wrote under so many different names. There were times that an entire pulp magazine would come out. Let's say uh, uh, Mystery Fiction or Argosy, one of these big pulp magazines of that period, would arrive, and he had written every story in it under a different name. <laughs> and 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 there would be letters to the editor. See, in the first part, uh, first part would say, "Hey, uh, that uh, that was a rotten story by Joe Joe Walton." Let's have more stories by Dynamite McGinn. That was a fantastic story. Of course, he wrote both of them. Uh, they, were, they were the same guy. And so he used to sit there, and he'd just turn this stuff out, and he was one of the few guys who had an actual contract from a pulp publisher that they paid him whether he, uh, whether he sent in anything or not. He was that prolific, though. He, he did. You know, he, They just sent him a check every month, and he turned this stuff out by the yard. Now, a lot of it was dross, but a lot of it was great, too, you know, because uh, their mind worked so freely they, that they, they would uh, turn out great stuff, uh, and at the same time, they would turn out bad, so they just turned it all out, is what they did. Now, there's, there's one aspect of, of uh, Pulp Fiction. Right now, we're going through the detective aspect. Uh, in other words, the private eye aspect, that practically all the characters that are being stolen from Pulp Fiction of that period are uh, private eyes. Well, I'm making a prediction that within within the next couple of years, they're going to start stealing other characters out of that, and a whole new genre will develop. Because the most popular pulp magazines of that period, according to friends of mine, and don't think for one minute that I was writing for that, because I, I was a little kid, I, all I know is what I have learned since from people I know who are in the publishing industry about this field. Fascinating field. Uh that the most popular stories of that time were not detective stories. That's what surprised me. You you would think that that Doc Savage would be the most uh, read of all of them, or something like, uh, oh, probably uh, Argosy, uh, detective fiction, which was another one. Because today we talk most about cops, but they were not the most popular stories of the period in the Pulp Fiction. And uh, I'll let you think for a minute just what you would consider would be the most popular. These they, they sold far more than the detective. And what would you think they would be? We'd be back after these goodies. You are about to hear the chairman of the board of a major bank on the subject of life insurance. Mr. Fred Gretsch, chairman of the Lincoln Savings Bank. I wanted to tell you myself about the Lincoln's low-cost savings bank life insurance because I have never known an insurance opportunity as remarkable as this one. The Lincoln offers life insurance as a public service. 
It isn't our main business, but helping people save money is. And our low-cost life insurance can save you a lot of money. The Lincoln's insurance representatives are experienced specialists. We pay them salaries to advise you conscientiously. Their earnings do not depend on which policy you buy or how much or what you pay for it. So our selling costs are much lower than elsewhere. And what we save in costs, you save in premiums for the very same protection. You needn't be a Lincoln depositor to accept this invitation. Drop in at any Lincoln branch and consult our specialist. It can mean really substantial savings for you. And that's what the Lincoln is here for. Thank you. Want a great winter ski weekend vacation idea? How about three days of unlimited, uncrowded skiing at the highest private ski slope in the Poconos? Two nights of gourmet dining, dancing, and entertainment. Indoor swimming pool, ice skating, ice fishing, and a wine tasting party. And all of this only 75 miles from the George Washington Bridge at Fred Waring's elegant, world-famous Shawnee Inn, nestled in a magnificent valley on the beautiful Delaware River. Cost for this all-inclusive Alpine Ski Weekend is only $49 per person, double occupancy, which includes three days of unlimited skiing, two nights, and gourmet meals at the scenic Shawnee Inn. Yes, only $49 per person, double occupancy. Call 212-252-9444. That's 212-252-9444 for information. Ask about our private ski villas with cozy fireplaces. Well, it's uh, Dell paperback time again, and uh, we have a note here that says, Justice, you'll be stunned by what happened after a cop's brutal murder in the onion field. Joseph Wambaugh's real-life suspense bestseller, now available as a Dell paperback. So don't miss the onion field. It's on the Dell rack, and you just stand back there and look up and down that Dell rack and see all those great books. And there it is, the onion field. And while you're about looking at the onion field, take a look at this Dell book. The greatest bestsellers. Books like Rebecca, Exodus, Hawaii. You don't just read them, you live them. Beulah Land by Lonnie Coleman is that kind of book. A sensational bestseller compared by many to Gone with the Wind. But Beulah Land is so frank it could only be published in our time. Beulah Land, the story of a great plantation in all its outward splendor and secret shame. Beulah Land, a Dell paperback bestseller. My heart burns back. This pressure must be gas again. Digel has told you that acid indigestion and heartburn are often accompanied by gas. Digel calls it gasid indigestion. Now a report from the U.S. government confirms that the only ingredients recognized effective against both acid indigestion and gas are an antacid combined with cymethicone. And that's exactly what Digel is. You see, antacids alone only take care of the acid. But Digel is different. It does more. It not only reduces the excess acid, but has the unique anti-gas ingredient, cymethicone, that gets rid of the trapped gas, too. In fact, in a survey conducted among doctors who specialize in stomach disorders, 98% of the doctors responding said they've recommended products containing Digel's special anti-gas ingredient, cymethicone. No antacid alone relieves like Digel does. Use only as directed. Digel, liquid or tablets for gasset indigestion. In regular mint flavor, and now new lemon orange. Because of gambling, are you losing your wages, savings, and your loved ones? Then it's possible that you're suffering from a serious illness known as compulsive gambling. A compulsive gambler gets progressively worse as he continues to gamble. If you have a desire to end this constant turmoil and want to live a normal life, contact Gamblers Anonymous by calling Murray Hill 9-7500. Now, all right, I'll tell you. What they were, 
There were two two genres of, of Pulp Fiction. I, uh, I don't know why I'm doing this tonight, except that it fascinates me. You know, our, our writings, our American writings, we developed this field almost exclusively. You know that the that the pulp genre of of fiction, uh, it developed really in in a, in a way in two countries, England and America, but not quite the same way. In the in the uh, in the early days of pulp fiction in England. It was a very different kind of pulp fiction. It was it was pulp fiction about the maid uh, who falls in love with the lord in the castle, uh, you know, in the in the manor house and the adventures there therein, or the the lost heir to the uh, Twigglesworth fortune. This would be the the kind of stuff they went for. It was all class oriented, <laughs> much of it anyway. It was it was in America that the that the that the genre of the outlaw began to develop back in the. Uh, late, right after the Civil War, the outlaw stories, uh, uh, the, what they called dime novels and all that, all that stuff began to develop, and it was mostly developed around the West. There were all kinds of characters that were written about. Uh, Buffalo Bill became a character in Pulp Fiction, although he was a real character. Uh, there were a lot of other characters that grew out of the West. What was one of them? Do you know any of them? Who? Well, we're, we're giving a little quiz here, a little literary quiz here. Uh, there were guys named Deadeye, and there were there were all kinds of great characters. Many of them were lawmen, and then of course later on the 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 cult of the romantic outlaw developed, the, the Billy the Kid cult, and so on. And uh, this was all the cowboys and Indians was a big thing. And then about the turn of the century, of course, Horatio Alger wrote a whole series of pulp novels for kids. And uh, those were pulp novels, really, in a, in a very real sense. And, and you know, is it interesting to note that here's a guy, Horatio Alger, who was never recognized by the, the literary world of his time. I mean, he was just a little guy sitting down there turning his stuff out and, and turning them out like popcorn. Uh, you know, the story of uh, Sam the Young Shortstop or A Hard Life's Climb to Fame, that kind of stuff. And yet... Of all the writers of the period, he is probably one of the most well-known writers worldwide of all those writers who were famous at the period. People know the name Horatio Alger who never read his stuff. <laughs> it's just, they say a Horatio Alger story. Well, he, he's become so famous that a lot of people would be surprised to know there really was a Horatio Alger, you know, who walked around and put a hat on every, every day, went out and got a sandwich. Uh, this is WOR New York. And, and Horatio Alger did all this stuff, and he, he wrote them out. You know, he wrote these things as dime novels. And, and his life was almost the opposite of the characters that he created, which has always been the case with many writers. So, so this is not, doesn't show he's a phony. What it does show is that literature is often escape for both the reader and the writer. Uh, so, so you'll find a lot of novels today about this fantastic stud. He has these incredible sexual adventures, and uh, in a dynamic world, you know, the American Dream Syndrome of Norman Mailer, fantastic, exactly the opposite of the writer. <laughs> the writer's living this this scene himself. I've known of guys who've written, you know, dynamic war novels who spent the entire time they were in the army uh, turning out uh, mimeographed orders for other guys, and uh, it's it's a it's a mythology both shared by the reader, and it's not. It's what it's li life's about. So face it, Shakespeare was not a prince of Denmark. So, uh, so the, the, it's a shared uh, fantasy. Well, then later, uh, they began to develop another kind of dime novel. Are you interested in all this? There was another kind that grew. It was a fascinating type. 
that grew as technology became important in the world. Prior to the to the Civil War, of course, technology was a very small part of most people's lives. They they lived on the farm. It was pretty basic life. Well, then after the Civil War, technology began to have a real impact on people's lives and the riverboats and so on. And Mark Twain, you know, his first fame was was uh, established because he was famous as a pilot of riverboats. And his name, Mark Twain, of course, comes from that. Uh, this is a, a, a boat term, a riverboat term, Mark Twain, meaning a, 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 it's, a, it's a call that is made uh, when they're measuring the depth of the water. They will holler, Mark 6, Mark 4, Mark Twain. And he took that name because he was a riverboat pilot, which made him a highly, highly romantic character to the people who lived on the farms. And this great machine going by was a very complicated, highly sophisticated piece of romantic gear. Mark Twain, and, and being a riverboat pilot, was roughly the same as, say, a guy today uh, starting to write fiction, and uh, he is a, as an astronaut, or he is a, more closely probably, he's a 747 pilot. And uh, it's a very romantic uh, kind of thing in a highly complex technical field, and this is what Twain was. Uh, later on, his first stories, by the way, made his fame in that field. Uh, he wrote uh, riverboats, river stories. Life on the Mississippi was one of his first big uh, hits uh, as, a, as a popular writer of the period. And the fact that he was a pilot made it really e even more exciting. So he would talk about life on the Mississippi. So the, the, the technology began to be part of the life of the people that is the readers, and they began fascinated by it. We take technology so much for granted today that it seems surprising to us that there was a time, and within the lifetime of people that are still alive around us, where technology simply was not known. They didn't, they didn't have it. The simplest kind of technology, like turning on a light. I mean, we, we don't think of this as technology. We just turn the lights on, that's all. But, you know, the idea of electric lights coming to a town well, must, have been a, must have been fantastically dramatic the first time it hit. And uh, the idea of... Uh, of uh, of, of, a, of a machine that moved without a horse or without somebody pushing it uh, must have been like magic, you know, to see the first car go through the town. And I'm sure that, uh, that there are people listening to who remember that vaguely, because that wasn't that long ago, historically. Certainly the first airplanes didn't fly where people could actually see them till roughly around the time of World War One and maybe even after. And uh, for a long time after World War One, well into the 20s, the idea of seeing an airplane fly overhead was was one of the biggest things that could happen to a guy in his whole year because they didn't have transcontinental flights that went all the time. And once in a while, if you were living in probably a place like North Dakota and an airplane flew over, well, they were way off the beaten path, and that was a sight, you know. So uh, the impact of technology changed literature, the pop literature. And it may surprise a lot of people to know that the most popular pulp fiction of the 20s and 30s, the pulp magazines, was not the, the, the detective or the, uh, the Fu Manchu stories or, or uh, any of those, but was, for example, there was a magazine called Railroad Stories, which was enormously popular. And it was about railroad men, because railroad men were very romantic to people who lived out on the prairies, and they'd see this great... Uh, this limited roar through at two in the morning, and these these uh, guys who just lived those those great roaring lives, moving across the the land, they seem to be uh, to those people. They seem to be almost like uh, 
uh, out of another world. They, 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 one, more, one morning they'd be in New York, and the next morning they're in Chicago. I mean, to the average guy, his one trip that he once made to the county seat was the biggest trip he ever made. Do you know that in this country today, this may surprise you, it did me when I found out about it, and these are actual FAA CAB figures that were recently released within the past year. Do you know that less than 10% of the population in America has ever flown in an airplane? Okay? And you're going to say, oh, that's ridiculous. It happens to be a truth. <laughs> happens to be the, the, the actual figures released by the CAB. And furthermore, this may even interest you more, that, that, that uh, even a smaller, a tiny percentage of people uh, have ever actually flown more than 200 miles from their home. Now, that would really surprise you, that many, many people never travel out of their hometown. Uh, the, the one trip they make to, uh, to Yellowstone is talked about all their lives, and they have pictures of it, and they show it. That's right now, 1974. We're not talking of the past. So the, 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 the nation really is divided into two very distinct groups. There's the people who are part of the 20th century life as we know it, and then there's the great vast majority who see it only on television. <laughs> That's their contact with what they don't take part in it. They just sit and watch it. And the idea of flying in it, well, I know people here at the station that have never flown. I can name them. You may be surprised to know who they are. So anyway, back in the in the thirties, uh, technology was the most fascinating thing to people, and it was a great dream world. It was a fantasy world. The detective world wasn't a fantasy world, not at all. There was a cop on every corner, you know. So what fantasize, you know? The the world of the technology, and here, right here, is is one of the most successful magazines in all of pulp history right here and I'm predicting that within a couple of years there will be writers who will begin to create series around the characters that were created by these people who wrote in this magazine right here and this is an actual copy and this one happens to be the August 1932 issue of this magazine it's quite a valuable magazine there aren't many of them that exist today because see early in the collecting world Collectors collected Doc Savage. They collected, uh, uh, let's say, comic strip magazines and all this. They were quite easy to collect. Uh, but, but these did not get collected, and so there aren't many of them in existence. This happens to be in mint condition, as you can see. It's got the front, all, everything. It's beautiful, even including the back binding is still here. How it's lasted this long, I don't know. But it is uh, a magazine from 1932, and it is uh, the one of the two or three most successful magazines in the history of pulp magazining. If I were on TV, I'd hold it up there for you. <laughs> and it is one based on technology, but technology and combined with war. Now, I'll let you think what the name of the magazine was if you're an expert out there. We'll be back. The current issue of TV Guide magazine looks at grassroots politics. Away from the glare of national television cameras and well-financed campaigns, candidates still run for office. What's it like to be a candidate with a limited budget in the age of TV campaigning? It's a fascinating report on politics, money, and TV. In the same issue, Bill Cosby, a former college football player, talks about why he's competing for part of the three-quarters of a million dollar purse on the TV series The Superstars. His insights make interesting reading in TV Guide. 
This week's cover story talks to an actress in a role she's been preparing for all her life. With a string of theatrical credits, Teresa Merritt has played a variety of roles. But after reading the first page of the script for That's My Mama, she said, That's me. Her story in TV Guide, America's biggest selling magazine. TV Guide, on sale everywhere. Just across the causeway from Miami, there's an island so beautiful we call it the Caribbean Island in Florida. Its name, Key Biscayne. And on this island is a very special resort. The Sheridan Royal Biscayne Beach Hotel and Racquet Club. On a dazzling white beach, surrounded by crystal blue waters. Here, you'll find luxurious rooms, private terraces, and ocean views. Continental cuisine served in elegant restaurants. Ten tennis courts. Four lighted for night play. Two swimming pools and a superb 18-hole championship golf course just to drive away. A vacation at the Royal Biscayne is a refreshing experience on a delightfully informal island with all the excitement of Miami Beach nearby. Your travel agent can help you plan a Royal Biscayne hotel vacation on Key Biscayne. Or call us toll-free at 800-325-3535 for reservations and information. That's 800-325-3535. Oh, come on, sing it, gang. Let's hear it. Someday you Someday you're going to... You're just going to give in. Sooner or later. With so many new kinds of tires coming out and so many claims being made about tires, maybe you're a little puzzled about making the right choice. Well, we have the solution. Just go out and buy General Tires. That's all. Just, you know, sooner or later you're going to do it. The General Tire Specialist, he'll help you put the right tires on your car. If you need new tires, he'll be glad to spend a few minutes explaining which General Tire is best for you, your driving, and your budget. Your general tire specialist is one reason why sooner or later you'll own generals. Look them up in the yellow page. Sooner Sing it out. Sooner or later you'll own generals. Sooner or later you'll own generals. Gramercy Park Clothes of 61 West 23rd Street says, Men who are doctors, lawyers, eyeglass wearers, subway riders, civil servants, businessmen, music lovers, clothing lovers, they all get clothes at Gramercy Park. They've learned that it pays to buy good clothes, especially when they can get them at these kind of prices. After 78 years in the men's clothing business, Gramercy Park will sell you a beautiful new suit, a cashmere overcoat, imported tweed sport coats, some slacks. And in these days of cockeyed prices... Gramercy Park is an eye-opener. Go to the factory building at 61 West 23rd Street, upstairs through the Big Iron Gate. Try on some well-tailored new clothes you'll be proud to wear. Gramercy Park is open to 7, Saturday to 6, and on Sunday from 10 to 5. The address is 61 West 23rd Street, New York. Okay, the, the magazine is called Flying Aces. It was a great magazine in its period, and I have a mint copy of it here, which is very highly prized on the collector's uh, collector's market. And uh, th- there were other magazines in that same genre, because flying was something that hardly anybody did in, in 1932. The idea of flying in 1932, after all, that was only how many years? That was like four or five years after Lindbergh made his famous flight. And, uh, and, and the idea of flying in an airplane was a highly 
highly sophisticated idea. And World War One had just uh, had finished, uh, had had been over. Let's see, 1918 was the end of the war, roughly. So that would make it uh, about 14 years before World War One was over. And by the time World War One was over, of course, it had become sort of a mythological war by this time. It had become romantic. And so they could write stories about it by now. And this was about the aces of World War One, who were still flying around in America and barnstorming, you know, doing a lot of barnstorming in the, in the pastures and stuff and flying jennies and DH-4s. And here's the sound, by the way, of a, of a World War One aircraft engine of that period, if you'll bring it on there. This is the sound of a, of a, of a, the, probably one of the most famous engines of the period. Uh, there are several of these in the Smithsonian, and uh, there are collectors. There's a club, in fact, devoted to collecting this type of engine. It was a, it was the engine that, that not only was part of World War One, but it became the engine that powered the early mail planes that flew across the country. Among the male pilots that were very famous of the period was Charles Lindbergh. He was a famous pilot in the in the in that world, and and these guys did un- incredible feats of flying. I mean, you know, they they flew is enormously dangerous. They flew out of Teterboro, by the way. They also flew out of Caldwell Wright, which was a famous airport in those days over here in New Jersey. It still exists, and the engine. That, uh, that that Lindbergh flew was tested over there when he flew his flight to uh, to Paris. But this engine that you're listening to is a famous engine of that period. That's all right. It'll go off and on. They're blipping it around. Don't worry about it. That engine was the Liberty engine, the so-called Liberty engine, which flew in the de Havilland 4 or the DH-3, DH-4 aircraft, which uh, became the... They were bombers, and where they were de Havilland, of course, was a British plane, but the Liberty was an American engine. was built in America, and uh, here now you hear another sound. This is another type of aircraft engine. Just keep it going there. This is another one, but this one is flying over, and you can hear it uh, in the distance. That's the sound of a Sopwith Camel. And so the sound of an aircraft, that was a different type of engine, but the, the, the Liberty engine was famous and fascinating. And uh, the sounds of these engines... Were, were very important to the people at the time. Now, that spawned a literature. <laughs> it really did. And here is, is, is this, this great literature. And you can, reading this, you can, you can, uh, you can see how the romance must have been of the time. And you can also see, too, how tough the world must have been, uh, economically for people. For example, here is a, here's an ad on the, the back page here. Of, uh, of the magazine. It's a full-page ad. And uh, the ad says, which is the job for you? And there are three jobs that you can train for, by mail, by the way, through for this outfit. Three jobs, and you can't imagine anybody training for these jobs by, by, uh, by mail. Uh, the jobs were, one, laborer. You can train by mail to be a laborer, clerk. <laughs> and they offer, they offer as a result of taking this mail, uh, this mail course, uh, it was an outfit called the Public Service uh, Educational Institute of North America. How's that for a name of an outfit? Uh, and they, they, they said in the ad, they, the ad right here says that you can earn upwards of $100 a month if you uh, are lucky and you really study hard. 
<laughs> so uh, you could see things were pretty tough. Now, uh, here here are some of the stories in this month's magazine, August 1932, and it's called Air Stories by Real Airmen. And that was another thing. Most of the guys that wrote these stories were ex-pilots. That's what added to it. For example, one of them is written by a famous guy who was credited with 16 uh, victories in World War One, And he's still around, and he's a friend of Ed Fitzgerald here on the station, by the way. And he's a famous writer in the genre, and a man named Arch Whitehouse. And uh, he had a story in this one called Happy Landings. Uh, here's another story, Monster of the Mist, a complete novel in this month. Every, every month had a complete novel, uh, Monster, M- Monster of the Mist. And you want to hear a description of the novel, and it's a complete in this issue, uh, written by Stuart M. Emery. Now, who knows who Stuart M. Emery was? That could very well have been, the, been another name for almost anybody from Edgar Rice Burroughs to, to John Steinbeck. <laughs> because a lot of guys worked at this. But it was Stuart Emery. And here is the, the, uh, the, the let's say, the thumbprint uh, picture of the novel. Quote, Every man at GHQ was gripped with horror at the tale that the lone pilot told. Seventeen pilots have died down, dived down through the mist over that German airfield and had never been seen again. A gripping mystery novel. They combined mystery with the war, you see. Here were 17 planes that dove down to strafe an airport and they disappeared and were never seen again. And this is the Monster of the Mist, a complete novel. The next story is humor. They had a lot of humor in these. And one of the most famous humor writers of the period in, in the field of, uh, of uh, aircraft, in the field of, of World War I airplane fiction, was a guy named Joe Archibald. Now, he was legendary. Really, he was. To readers of Pulp Fiction of that time, and I've talked to editors around, the name Joe Archibald had as much clout on the front of a, of a Flying Aces or a G8 in his Battle Aces magazine of that period than if, say, today uh, you were to have on the front of your magazine a an exclusive, first-time-ever-told story by uh, Norman Mailer, who rips aside the, 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 the curtain of sham over Philip Roth. <laughs> I mean, he was big, potent box office. And that was Joe Archibald. And he created characters. And one of his most famous characters was a guy called Phineas Pinkham. Phineas Pinkham was a famous character who ran through all of his stories. He was like a, you know, a humor character, like, uh, like say, Tom Sawyer. And he was, a, he was a World War I pilot. And his story this month is called Spy a la Mode by Joe Archibald. And here is the description of the story. Phineas Carbuncle Pinkham was beginning to wonder if a sense of humor wasn't a handicap. But it took a lot to make him feel that way. Often I feel that way, too. Sense of humor is a handicap. And I'll read you the opening sentence of that story so you get an idea what it sounded like. On page 54, uh, Phineas Pinkham takes off. And it's a short story. Uh, it's, it's only uh, four or five... St- oh, wait a minute. Yeah, here it is. Oh, it's longer than that. It's quite. Here it is. Phineas Pinkham. A Phineas Pinkham Howell, it's described. Uh, by Joe Archibald, who is the uh, editor or the author of Hair Tonic... Oh, God, hair tonic, that's H-E-R-R, hair tonic, uh, no money, no flyy, etc. 
For the first time in his life, Phineas Carbuncle Pinkham wondered if a sense of humor wasn't a handicap uh, to a man who aspired to grow a long white beard and play with his grandchildren. That was always the the uh, ambition of all pilots of that period to live to have grandchildren. They hardly ever did. It says it had taken a lot to make him that way, just a little matter of assaulting a colonel. Now here's the opening of the story. The SPAD warming up in front of A Flight's hangar intrigued Colonel William Q. Woolsey. The brass hat had recently been assigned to the general staff at Chateaumont, and business of much importance had brought him to the drome of the 9th Pursuit Squadron, Major Rufus Garrity commanding. This business concluded, Colonel Woolsey had wandered out of wings to take a look-see at how and for what reason an airdrome percolated. The SPAD was as much an attraction to the aforementioned Colonel as a talking machine is to a tribe of Zulus. He approached it and grinned broadly at a tall, homely-looking specimen of the genus Homo, who leaned indolently against the battle bus, giving instructions to a pair of grease monkeys. The verbal barrage was punctuated with rich, ripe, Adjectives. As two or three of these floated over to Colonel Wolseley, he frowned, shugged out his jaw another notch, and increased his pace. I say, he snapped as he drew up. Is that the proper language for an officer to use? By gad, I've never heard worse in a mule skinner's outfit. Phineas Pinkham, Lieutenant Phineas Carbuncle Pinkham, saluted briskly, his face turning an appearance of nausea. <laughs> you never heard as good? It's the only language these here bums know. Then there's a couple of blanks. If Major Garrity had not been delving into very profound problems of his own, he might have taken the time and trouble to... And that was the beginning of the story, introducing Phineas Pinkham. Famous character, by the way. Uh, the next story in, uh, in this, great, this, great, uh, this great magazine of the period is another complete novelette, this one called Periscope Pond, a complete novelette uh, written by Syl McDowell. And uh, the description of that story is only one man could save that shipload of Yanks from the grim menace of buoy 13, and that man was a deserter from the Yank Air Force overseas. That's called Periscope Pond. And here's another one. Baraka leads a raid on the Austrians. This happens to be a true story. It's a, in every issue, they would have a story of a true raid that occurred. It was like history. Baraka leads a raid on the Austrians. A thrilling story of this month's cover by the artist, Paul Bissell. The artist drew the, the thing, which is, uh, shows a, a very early raid of bombing planes on Austria. And that was the feature, so-called uh, non-fiction story in that particular issue. But this is a fascinating magazine. And a lot of people don't even know of the existence of these. But back in the in that period, uh, there were several of that type. There was uh, Daredevil Aces, was another famous one. All of these came, really, uh, from the same publishers. There were two or three publishers who did them. Daredevil Aces, G8 and his Battle Aces would make a classic, uh, I would say a classic, sort of a spoof spy World War One aircraft TV series today. G8 was a secret agent who was also an ace. And even in his squadron, they did not know that he was a, a, a an agent. He was a spy. And that was his number, G8. Uh, just like, uh, you know, 007. He was G8. And he had this, uh, this squadron. He was always fighting Baron von Richthofen and, and uh, strange, sinister uh, counter-spies from the German side. And that was a famous series. Uh, Daredevil Aces, and the one I just read to you was the most famous of all, and it was called Flying Aces. And the subtitle of the magazine was Biggest and Best Air Magazine. 
And the uh, the the big issue in that issue, uh, that is uh, that that particular feature in that issue was Baron von Richthofen's life in pictures. And inside they had a whole series of of uh, drawings and paintings of von Richthofen. And there are some guys that are still around today. For example, here's one who still writes for uh, science fiction. You see his name occasionally in SF. A guy named Lester Dent. Well, Lester Dent wrote a story in that issue called Four to One. Blazing hangers and a pitted tarmac marked the havoc those daring Fokker Raiders had made. But the bomb that did the most damage to the airdrome of the 88th Yank Squadron was a dud bomb that did not explode. An exciting mystery story. Four to One by Lester Dent. <laughs> now, now, that genre has gone almost completely undiscovered by collectors, and yet maybe because they're very difficult to come by. Very few of those magazines survive today. Uh, and yet millions of them were sold. How much did it cost? Ten, no, this was 20 cents. 20 cents an issue, which was considered at that time a very expensive magazine. Uh, it was almost twice, well, it was twice the price of magazines like Doc Savage and like uh, Argosy and then uh, magazines like uh, uh, Fu Manchu was a series at that time. But uh, this was an elegant magazine of an elegant, well, it's hard to say whether it was elegant or not. But uh, it certainly had life and vitality. Look at look at the look at that cover. I mean, that cover should be framed right there. You know, put a frame around it, man. Hey, <laughs> you got yourself a, a piece of business. And the ads in it alone. Here's an ad and say, no more shaving. A new discovery. Put this stuff on your face, and your hair doesn't grow. What a flim flam that was. <laughs> oh, this is W O R New York. Stay tuned for in conversation. Corporation presents In Conversation, a half hour of lively talk meant to enlighten and involve you, the listener. Tonight, our host is Gerard Peel, publisher of the magazine Scientific American. I'm talking to George Gerbner, who is professor of communications and dean of the Annenberg School of Communications at the University of Pennsylvania. I am Gerard Peel, publisher of the magazine Scientific American. George, uh, I suppose communicating is what you and I are doing right now. Why do uh, we have to use a four-syllable Latin word like communicate instead of a nice one-syllable, four-letter Anglo-Saxon word like talk? We can use both words, the essentially mean the same thing, but communicating has the root common, make common, to share. So in addition to talk, expression, it also has the idea of, of sharing something, of making, uh, of, of exchanging ideas, which is essentially what we do in communication. You can use either word. And I suppose it includes uh, communication by channels other than talking, too, as, for example, uh, your gesturing. 